0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast.
1: I would just like to tell you now how we intend for this panel to proceed. What we intend to do is to introduce ourselves to you in a way that explains to you why the subject matter of tonight's panel is meaningful for us in our work and in our lives. Uh, As I said, I run um, the Community Stories Program at the Sydney Jewish Museum, which is a program which enables members of our community to write or tell their stories. So we... Essentially we publish memoirs of the Jewish community and we have to date published 80 books in the last since 2002 when the program started Initially when we started we had a number of manuscripts and so we produced books from the manuscripts and Most of the time we were doing memoirs of Holocaust survivors as you can tell from the topic of this um, panel what happened is as the survivors started to age we had many of them who didn't want to r- actually write their own stories, and they wanted rather to tell their stories, so we, uh, we initiated an oral history archive whereby we started um, recording testimonies. We did whole-of-life testimonies, and so often they went for many sessions, and then as time progressed... Less and less of the survivors were actually able to write the stories themselves, which is not to say that none can. We still do get manuscripts, but the vast majority are actually ghost-written by our department based on testimonial interviews. And so what's happened now is that we're doing larger and larger numbers of what are very extensive interviews up to 10 or 12 hours uh, over a whole person's life. So that is my involvement um, with testimony and with this subject. Um, And I've been working for the Sydney Jewish Museum for 14 years. But longer than me, with a much longer pedigree, is Avril, um, Dr. Avril Alba.
0: Um, So when Jackie asked us to think about how Um, to introduce ourselves. I realized, I was trying to think to myself, when was the first time I either heard or used or imbibed testimony? And it it actually came to me quite late in my realization that it was of course as a child because my father was a Holocaust survivor from a place called Rovno, which is now in Ukraine uh, and was in Eastern Poland. And uh, he was the sole survivor of his family. And the testimony that I heard was basically his story. And I can't remember when I ever didn't know it. Uh, it was just always part of the fabric of our family life. And I think in many ways it did shape, you know, the way I saw the world and uh, what I eventually, not, it wasn't a plan, but what I eventually ended up doing in my life, I think it has to be connected um, back to that. So that was sort of the first experience I had of it. And it was certainly a powerful thing for me growing up. Um but the, the, the sort of formal beginnings of my work with testimony was at the Sydney Jewish Museum. So I began my work there, gosh, it's about 16 years ago now, I guess, as the education officer. And I think the primary uh, thing for me was coming into a museum where which was founded and funded primarily by Holocaust survivors and realising that these people felt so strongly about what they did that many of them had come once or even twice a week Um, for, at that point, let's see, it was was about 10 years, and in the nearly 10 years that I worked there, many of them kept coming that, that amount of time for that 10 years. So if you can imagine, some people have been coming to this museum for 20 years, or some even more than 20 years, telling this story once to twice to sometimes three times a week, to really diverse audiences. So how did I feel that was utilized? I think what it did, and what it still does, is it gives an enormously personal connection and aspect, obviously, to a very difficult history, a difficult history to tell, and a difficult history to hear, and we'll talk about that. I was then lucky enough to move on to cur- curation. And um, I don't know if, if actually my, uh, one of my colleagues, who who is our, one of our main designers, is here, but I want to mention her at this point, Jizuk Khan, who um, worked on the testimony aspect of the most recent redevelopment we did to the Holocaust exhibition and Testimony was fundamental from the start of that process. So I'm not even talking about how we uh, conceptualised the exhibition, but even the project itself. So right from the start, we we did, we did undertook uh, focus groups with survivors about how they envisaged, I know Ari's going to talk more about this, so I'm not going to spend too long, but, but what this museum, what this exhibition was about. And then eventually embedding their voices into the exhibition itself through actually mainly through an app, called Voices, which, you know, makes sense. Um, and at each point, the idea was whenever you heard testimony throughout the display, it really was to give a sort of affective, um, you know, aspect to, to being in that space and, and feeling that history, you know, learning about it, but also actually feeling it through the voices of others, um, and then finally, about five, six years ago, I actually came across to this esteemed institution, um, at, but continued my work at the museum at the at the same time, and and so I, t- I use testimony in my work here, both as a teacher and a researcher. And I think as a teacher, what testimony allows me to do is to. Engage with students about the limits of testimony, and I think I'll talk more about that as well. I, I know later in terms of academic um, research and practice, but I'll just I'll just leave that sort of hanging for now. The idea of the limits of what we can know about this history, as well as the potentials of it, um, and then finally, as a researcher, I think it's probably the hardest. Um, partly because there are real problems as anyone here who's worked in oral history knows um, that for historians oral history is a vexed subject it continues to be a vexed um, kind of subject because of this because of the subjectivity um, involved in working with with individual testimonies when you're trying to develop um, comprehensive histories but at the same time i think what's so interesting and again i'll go into this later on is, is for holocaust history in particular the, the very inclusion of oral history has been in the name of creating more comprehensive history. So I'll talk a bit more about that later on. Okay. Now, could we please hear
1: from you, Ari? Because yes. <laughs> you have been at the museum next longest. Oh, no, maybe not, but yeah. possibly.
2: Um, so I've been in the museum for six years, and my name's Ari. <laughs> I work in the um, education departments. And, you know, I was just listening to Avril, what she was saying, and... Sorry, excuse me. And there were so many things that were making my mind fire in different ways. So one of the ways, reasons we came to be on this panel is the Oral History Conference Association was doing a conference. And I thought it would be really interesting for the four of us who come from very different perspectives, and yet there's an overlap in the way we think about the voices of those sharing their stories. So sometimes I think the idea of testimony is a little bit of a problematic word. That often when we think of testimony, we're thinking of somebody sharing their recollection, say, in a court of law. And it comes from you know, understanding that there's a total veracity to what this human being is saying as a sort of statement of truth or fact. Whereas when I work with survivors in the museum, and there are some of them here, um, I feel it's something actually much more individual. There's a performative aspect that when a survivor gets up, and shares a story they might have been talking about for up to 25, 26 years, that there's a fluidity to the process taking place that I think is really interesting and at the same time also really problematic. And so my background as oral historian is I believe there's a real beauty and actually even a sacredness to just hearing any person's story. So I firmly believe that any person's story actually really matters. They're almost in one sense equally as valid as anybody else's story. And at the same time, in terms of this history of the Holocaust, there's a particular pertinence to the survivor's voice. And I think there are a number of really crucial reasons why, and one of them is is there are very few survivors. The Germans will murder about 85% of the Jewish population they get control of. And of the 15% of Jewish people who survive, very few will speak. And at the same time, I'm aware that there's a culture that emerges that's sort of a culture a martyrdom of suffering that we feel when we hear somebody who suffers there's a real poignancy that occurs to hearing that voice. And part of me thinks that there's a validity to that, that there is something really crucial to hearing the voice of a survivor of a genocide victim. And at the same time I feel sometimes as a culture we sometimes say that voice is more important than somebody else's voice. So is an interesting aside in our museum, as our museum has passed time, uh, which was created, and really structure around the notion of the voices of survivors, we've started to use the voices more of child survivors. And this is a little bit of a problematic term, but nonetheless this understanding of children who survived the Holocaust are called child survivors. And they're no longer children, obviously. They're quite elderly men and women. And Anna's laughing. She's not so elderly. She's a young woman. (laughs) But nonetheless, my point being that we understand there's a specific experience to a child that's different to an adult, but many older survivors have dismissed the trauma of child survivors, particularly if child survivors weren't in concentration camps. And so there emerges this hierarchy of suffering that's really problematic. And at the same time, I believe there's a real beauty and poignancy to our museum in rescuing the voice of survivors and saying, what does it mean to hear their voice? And so for me, I think there's something really beautiful that occurs when a group of students come in. And say when I'm speaking to you now, here we are speaking a bit academically, and we're speaking a bit of a distance. Whereas when students hear a 90-year-old person say, I was in Wuj Ghetto, I was in Bergen-Belsen, or Buchenwald, <coughs> an incredible human verisimilitude takes place, like when we see a piece of theater, that we almost feel like by hearing their story, it becomes more real. And I actually don't always believe that's the case, but I understand why our students believe that or feel that. So for me, when I moved into the museum, what I became really, really interested in was how to, for students, for them to make an emotional connection to the history. And I actually think that's really important for a 15-, 16-, 17-year-old to build an understanding of empathy. Then instead of them saying, Jewish people, 75 years ago, on the other side of the globe are not like me. They realise they're exactly like them. And so part of the beauty of what I think the museum does is, I ended up working at the end of my time at university on doing a lot of comparative genocide, although it wasn't my area of research as an oral historian. So one of the things we now do as a museum is we invite in the voices of Rwandan survivors or Cambodian survivors or survivors of the stolen generation, or from the former civil war in the former Yugoslavia, the civil war Mm -hmm. in the former Yugoslavia. So in this sense, I believe my community that I'm a part of, we've made a lot of mistakes. We're still struggling with the moral questions of what does it mean to ask a survivor to share their story again and again? What does it do to a survivor to relive their trauma? And I'm of the very strong opinion it doesn't do healthy things to them, emotionally or mentally. So the last thing I'm gonna end on here is that despite the mistakes our community has made, I believe um, museums uniquely positioned to in some way help other communities who are starting to realise the voices of their survivors are also just as important as the survivors of the community in terms of the Sydney Jewish Museum.
1: Thank you very much. Um, now, could we please hear from um, you, Professor Mark Robertson, and tell us what your connection to this subject is?
3: Uh, thank you, Jackie. So my name's Michael Robertson. My disciplinary background is psychiatry. Uh, my relationship with the museum is in its fourth or fifth year. I'm one of three of the uh, visiting fellows uh, to the museum, and our work is to situate uh, the research and teaching that we're doing in medical ethics and looking at the crimes perpetrated under National Socialism and their contemporary relevance to, to bioethics. And so that's my nexus to the museum, at least in the first instance. It's been a privilege, though, to be able to work and interact with these wonderful people um, to expand uh, our, our lines of inquiry. Um, my presence here is um, qua uh, therapist, um, not their therapist. Um, <laughs> and I, not so much testimony, I work with narrative. I will bear witness to about five or six traumatic narratives a day uh, in my work Uh, because my clinical focus has been for the last 15 years trauma. Um, So this morning I saw somebody who had been traumatized in institutional care and spent most of his adult life in jail. I uh, saw a young man who um, had his best friend killed in a rock climbing accident uh, whilst working. I saw uh, an Aboriginal person uh, who had been subject to lateral violence within um, one of the Aboriginal health corporations. So I, I see a broad variety of people um, have experienced multiple forms of trauma in different settings and across different stages of life. And uh, one of the things that I've come to acknowledge or at least become more cognizant of uh, since engaging in this space is uh, an observation that uh, the philosopher William James made that in any conversation there are six people. There is you as you see yourself, you as the other person sees you and you as you truly are, if such a thing is is knowable. And I think that uh, Ari spoke about the performative aspect of trauma testimony, which ultimately we are talking about traumatic testimony. But I'm interested increasingly in the other form of participation, the witnessing and engagement with that, to bear witness to trauma, to participate in narrative, which is ultimately a two-person or multi-person process. So if you abide James's view that there are six people in any two-person interaction, there are hundreds of people sitting here cogitating and mulling over what's being said. And the other thing that's become very apparent to me, not only in my work but also in this space, is that... Narrative and testimony um, exists in an interpersonal space. There is a potential space between the narrator, the interlocutor, the witness, and that it's that engagement in that interpersonal space, that multi-personed process. So it's not testimony just somebody spewing forth a story and that's that. It is an interpersonal process that has complex dynamics and complex interplays that I think. Hopefully, we get to engage a bit more with this evening. So that's my kind of perspective. I hope we get to unpack some of this a bit later. That's that's been my experience. Thank
1: you. Well, it's definitely my experience. Um, I have found doing lengthy interviews that it's, <coughs> it's the the whole transaction is definitely not one that is at arm's length, even though it's it's a professional um, situation. Because with Holocaust survivors, one has always to be respectful. Um, and understanding of the incredible trauma that they've been through, and often it's a situation of us both sitting and crying. Um, and over a prolonged period of time, it can be a situation where the relationship is um, sort of almost symbiotic. It's not just me getting the information; it's the survivor is being acknowledged for what they went through. And over a period of several interviews, when they come to an end, I have found on several occasions that the survivor doesn't want that process to end. They want it to be next week for me to come again so that we can talk. And that's a very important thing to understand that it's an, it really is an acknowledgement of somebody's life uh, and that for me is very important. Um, so now what I'm going to do is ask a couple of questions that hopefully will um, open up some interesting conversation. Um, Ari can you tell me how you've seen um, survivor testimony evolve at our museum and both from the point of view of the the person who is listening to the, the um, testimony and also the survivor
2: um, so I'll use as a quick example I'll come down to the image of this lady here and she's just in my mind because Lena's almost a hundred years old and so um, I spend a little bit of time outside even of work and I'll go visit her. And I think it's really incredible what she's saying here, that as Lena's memory started to go, we transitioned her from her telling her story to doing it as a conversation. And I, I, coming from a background of an oral historian, I always felt like a conversation was much more organic you just talked one human being to another and you saw where that conversation went. So one of the biggest changes we've made is we've started to evolve from survivors simply getting up and speaking for 30 to 50 minutes to a group of young men and women to us sitting down and talking to them. And I'll say this is something I really wanted us to transition to as a department because that was how I'd begun as an oral historian working. And then I saw the fruits of it that you could sometimes, if you built a close enough relationship, for example, I did with Lena, She, for example, dismissed that her life before World War II was not something students wanted to hear about. But I, for example, have a five-year-old daughter and she's obsessed with blueberries. And so I spoke to Lena about this and she grew up in Poland and Poland, the cheapest fruit to eat was blueberries. And so we had this little connection, we both laughed about childhood of eating blueberries. And so then I started speaking to her about dating. And so she spoke and said, you know, when she was in Warsaw, I never heard her share this story to students, although I'd heard her share it um, on her t- recorded testimony. And she said when she was in Warsaw ghetto, her boyfriend came to see her, and they had been boyfriend and girlfriend before, and he came and arrived with a bunch of carrots as flowers, but they were wilted. And I, she said, so he arrived at the door and he had these wilted carrots, and I said, and then what you do? She said, oh, we snogged. and and there was a group of people standing in front of this gorgeous woman who's, like, almost 100 years old, and they all laughed. And I said, do you remember when she first kissed? She said, no, I don't remember when we first kissed. We just did a lot of kissing. (laughs) And I thought, you know, suddenly you see this human being in a way that's different that she wouldn't have shared because she thinks what people want to hear is only about the trauma, not about these little anecdotes that tell us who this human being is as a living, breathing soul. So let's just close on that, that one of the things we've evolved over time is an understanding of what a conversation can do that can make their story be heard in a different way and then the person sharing their story can suddenly start to open up in different ways and speak in different ways than as opposed to being like the rehearsed script of the things I have to talk about.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. with I think that that's absolutely true and and I have also changed my perception on some of those really personal aspects over time where, um, for example, we've, we've done interviews and... Um, survivors have talked a lot about their sexual experiences when they were young and they seem to want to tell us about those and they want them included in their book and often their families are uncomfortable with that but in reality and it took me a long time to realize this one of my editors said to me no you have to keep that in because that is really very integral to the person as a whole person that They have their survival story, but they also have a personal story and a whole personal life. And you see this person now who's in their 80s, but when they look in the mirror, perhaps they see themselves as their younger self who had this other outside life. And I think it's very important for us to acknowledge all those aspects of the story and not, or at least from my point of view, for the job that I do, and not just focus on the survival story. I think it's very important to understand for for readers and for people who are engaging with the story that this is a whole story. Um, Michael, I'm interested to know from you what you feel about the emotional and psychological um, impact it's likely to have on survivors and also on the audience um, listening to these type of um, stories.
3: Um, well, it's so building on the uh, comment that this is an interpersonal process when a person narrates a trauma. I'll just beg your indulgence for a moment to comment a bit about memory and what memory is and the neural substrate we think of memory and how it plays in. So memory is not going to a filing cabinet and pulling out a file and reading the same document time and time again. Mer- memory exists as we think in patterns of activation of neural networks. So we, lay, we don't have a neuron that we store a particular memory in, we have a pattern of activation of a, of a dense kind of pattern of neural network. And so every time a memory is evoked, um, there is a slight change in the pattern of activation of the neural network. And so stories told and retold over time vary subtly, but often significantly. It was very interesting. Too there's a documentary called Nana, um, and it features uh, a French survivor who was deported to Auschwitz-Birkenau and survived the selection and became an interpreter for Mengele. Um, and she survived the war and lived to well into her 90s. And the film was made by her daughter, and it cuts various points in her life, she's either interviewed on French television in her 60s, she's interviewed uh, at various points in her life cycle right up until the end, and what she's been able to do is juxtapose the way in which her grandmother narrated stories at different, the same story at different points in life, and the different emphases and the different kind of significance the story had for her. So, um, memory... Traumatic memory in particular is encoded in a very different way from where did I park this evening, where are my keys, what have I got on tomorrow. We we experience traumatic memories in quite different ways. And so when we narrate traumatic events, we activate neural networks that we don't normally have access to. It's called uh, state-dependent recall or situationally accessible memory. What we understand, though, is when we activate these neural networks, we also release uh, the the stress responses that we have. So to narrate a trauma is an equivalent process in the nervous system to experiencing the trauma. Uh, And so we release cortisol and all of these other stress response hormones that are at times injurious to the nervous system. We know that if you constantly bathe your brain in cortisol, you will damage very sensitive, delicate structures that affect memory and regulation of, of mood and so on. So when a person is narrating a traumatic story, um, they are antagonising those parts of their brain that would have been originally been traumatised during the experience. They recreate the milieu of the trauma. And the evidence seems to be that when a person is experiencing distressing flashbacks or nightmares, the sorts of features that we recognise in post-traumatic stress disorder, they are activating these neural networks and they are... Recreating this traumatic neuroendocrine phenomenon which damages their brain, damages frontal lobe, damages the hippocampus, and we understand that it's actually the re-experiencing symptoms that are what damages people who are traumatised. We know that children who are traumatised, their brains develop differently from, say, adults who sustain trauma, but we know that adults who are re-experiencing trauma, whether by re-narrating it or having some sort of environmental stimulus, it injures the brain. And so, to me, when I I see a patient, I see lots of police officers and firemen and so on, and um, they often come with, you know, decades and decades of traumatic experiences, and one knows that when you start asking that question, you introduce that into the interpersonal space, that traumatises the patient. So I have to work quite carefully with that. And so, to answer the question, I am concerned um, about the potential injury visited upon the person narrating the trauma and I think we could sort of throw this back a little, say take a neutral example, Um, everyone, well most people might recognise in Landsman's Shoah the iconic scene of uh, Abraham Bomba, the barber at Treblinka being forced to narrate this unspeakable experience he had Um, and we've talked about this in other fora about the, the morality of what Landsmann does by forcing this man to disintegrate on camera. And I'm not just thinking about his frontal lobes being bathed in cortisol, I'm also thinking about just the the, the ethics of this. So I, I wonder if I could sort of throw that back to my colleagues here as to where this all is situated.
0: Yeah, we. I mean, this is this is a scene that we come back to again and again. And those of you who haven't seen Claude Lundsman's epic, we definitely recommend it, but do it slowly over time. It's nine hours. Um, and it's, it's an incredible, incredible scene. And it... I, I go backwards and forwards in, my, in a sense in my ethical judgment if there if there should be one. If Lanzmann was here, he, he died, in fact, very recently, he would say there's no ethical judgment because what he created was a work of art and uh, and that we should not judge what, what he did by standards of ethics. Um, but there is that moment, and in this moment, basically, uh, he cannot speak because he's recounting the moment at which his fellow barber, witnesses, his wife, his his neighbor's wife, the townsfolk that he lived with, come in to have their hair cut before they are about to go to the gas chambers. And what can one say in that in that moment? And he and he cannot speak. Right, he cannot speak at that point. Um, there is a the there is a. Uh, an analogy I could think of, which is the the writing of Charlotte Delbo, and Charlotte Delbo was a non-Jewish French resistance fighter who ends up being in Auschwitz as well. And again. A canonical work that I would definitely recommend. And there comes a point where she mulls over in her mind, "Can I speak to you about Auschwitz?" And she remembers. She 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 basically goes through this recollection where she says, "You know, I, I'm in a dream, and Auschwitz comes to me in a dream, and I cannot speak, and I I feel the unbearable cold, and I feel the hunger, and I feel and I cannot speak, and it takes, and I wake up. The only thing that saves me is I wake up from the dream." And, um, and it takes me days. And she says, and she calls it the skin of Auschwitz. And she says, then the skin comes back, the, the part that saves her, in a sense, the part that defends against what you're talking about. And then she says, and then I can speak to you of Auschwitz. And so I guess what I'm trying to put together here is that it's the moments of unspeakability in the testimony that I am increasingly um, aware of and affected by, and and particularly like to challenge—challenges you know, the wrong words, but expose my students to so even while I, I try very much to be sensitive to them when I show them something like Bomba or I talk to them about Charlotte Delbo's testimony, I think in some ways it is it is those incredible moments of silence of not being able to speak that are just as important and perhaps more powerful <laughs> precisely because of what you're saying. Yeah.
2: Um, I was going to say, I might use um, Lena again because I think it's really interesting what she's saying in this quote and her words are here and she's still alive and it's almost like a mantra sometimes the way she repeats it so I might sit down and have a coffee with her and it might be half an hour or two, three hours and she'll say this, you know, at a certain point in time we're talking and it hurts so much I can't talk anymore and so for me I'm interested as an oral historian that we would only hear this because we've listened to her voice because we've created a place in which she gets to talk and we've sat there and listened. So the other day I went with a survivor to a very classy school out in Mossman called Queenwood. And this survivor spoke in front of 400 people. And you could see what it meant to that survivor to have 400 young women, their parents come through. It was a full auditorium saying, you know, your story matters. So there's this interesting debate that I don't think as a museum we've actually resolved ethically, the debate, what does it mean for a survivor to get up, share their trauma. There's a sort of sometimes pornographic aspect to this that I don't think is always healthy for the audience, for the survivor, for me as an educator. Sometimes it's a bit gratuitous. But most of the time, I actually believe what's taking place is really quite poignant, most of the time. And that's the compromise. And so when I watch this woman speaking to these young women and there's like a whole audience and she made jokes and they laughed and, I was like, and I, you realise that it gives a sense of purpose, that simply being a, that sense of acknowledgement you were talking about becomes really crucial. And so for me, like this question of what Landsman did in Shoah, I come from a very different perspective, that I feel like when you build a relationship with a survivor, that you sit down and talk for a long time and you show them that you care for them because they're human beings. So for me, I don't think the Holocaust is a question of Jewish history. It's human history and you realise that young men and women in front of you, a million questions are running through their minds and their hearts and their souls, and they're starting to articulate to themselves, this lovely, beautiful human being behind me, somebody wanted to murder them. And the person who wanted to murder them had kids of their own, and yet they murdered somebody else's kids. And all these questions might not necessarily be articulated, but quite clearly they're starting to form there, and that's why they're listening to this story. And they realise this story is not about Jews, it's about them as human beings. And so, for me, despite some of the moral problems I might have, I feel like creating these spaces is important. And if I have a relationship with a survivor, and I'll give one other example, this survivor I sat down recently publicly in a space, but before we met, I actually wish we'd met more, but we had a few times to talk. And this survivor goes back to visit the house of his parents um, in Czechoslovakia. And I have to say, it's one of the most heartbreaking things and I'm, I think about this a great deal. And he, every time he went back to Czechoslovakia, he goes and takes photographs of his family home, where his parents lived, and his parents didn't get to have a full life. And he sat there opposite to me and I said, "You know, why do you do this? Like, you go back to this place and you just take photographs of your family home." And inside I'll say, like I was getting so emotional, and this elderly man, who's like family to me, like you're saying, like you build and you build a relationship, you cry together, you laugh together. And he said to me, I'm sentimental. And in that, that one word is everything and nothing. But even if I didn't tell you he told me he was sentimental, I think if I just shared you this story that he went back to visit his birth home and his parents weren't there and somebody else lives there now and he's visit this home again and again and takes photographs of the world that he'll never have, you get it. And so in those stories is everything. And so that's why I think that if you're with an adult, it's their choice, and you hopefully create a safe space that you show them you love them and you care for them, and you think their voice is sacred, and then, as long as you've created a space that, as much as you can, it's going to stuff up in some way, but as much as you can, you've created a place that shows them I am here for you no matter what. And if this story gets heard by other people, they're going to care for you because your story matters. That's as much as I think we can do.
3: I mean, that's an analogous situation to
2: a psychotherapeutic relationship
3: that you yeah. are creating. That's partially what I want. Yeah, My it, it, role is partially that. Yeah, and, and you create, you know, if you sort abide the analogy of a of therapeutic relationship, um, that interaction is going to be endowed with qualities that each person brings. Yes, So. Yeah. You know, we talk about transference, so if, you know, I have a patient and they start relating to me as if I were their father, then that's a paternal transference. So you sort of say, well, this is, this is what's going on in all relationships, and clearly if you're talking about you know, the most traumatic events that a person can endure and survive, um, that has to create a comparable situation of transference and counter-transference, and therefore a lot is going on in that interaction. Um, and that, again, there are, op- there are obligations. You have a moral obligation in that relationship. So as a, as a, as a, as a therapist, um, I have a moral obligation in terms of boundaries and in terms of respecting the patient's
4: autonomy and all these sorts of other
3: sort of injunctions you have as a medical practitioner. It, it's kind of a, it's an analogous space, and I'm, I'm sort of interested as to how you can... Construct a value system, or construct a sort of a, a set of um, uh, injunctions that make it safe for not only the, testif- the testifier but the witness.
2: You know. What do you mean? are not their what, what, what do you mean by safe, though?
3: Well, again, that's a it's a polysemous term. It could be m- multiple things. I mean, there is there's there's obviously there is the trauma I spoke of earlier of, of, of rekindling that. And I, I know that may come off paternalistic and saying well, people have a right to speak and it's not, no. that's not the point. But there's also the vicarious traumatization that the witness experiences. Um, and, you know, I think that there is concern within the institution about the potential to, to harm uh, the guides, the volunteers, by day in, day out. Um, <laughs> Bathing themselves in this um, horror, um, you know. And as important as the work is, and as you know, critical it is to keep these memories going and keep this narrative flowing. Um, it, 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 I think there is that kind of um, that risk.
1: But I think that there's a positivity to it that perhaps from your angle you're not necessarily seeing that we, I think, see or Ari and I definitely see, which is. Um, an incredible degree of positivity, of acknowledgement, of, of real acknowledgement of that experience. Hmm. So the, I think there's a duality. I think there's that real acknowledgement of their story and, and the importance of their story. And even in a situation where, in my case, when we talk about that hierarchy of survival, I will have um, perhaps a child survivor call me and say they want to do their story, but are they, you know, not, they not they didn't go to a camp will I still take their story on? And that isn't, I mean that obviously is is a, a question which to me I don't I don't experience that hierarchy. I don't get it. But I think that it's also important in our museum for survivors, to have this acknowledgement, and not just the acknowledgement of of themselves. I did a number of interviews years ago, which I wish we could have actually listened to sound bites tonight, with two survivors, John Weiner and Marika Weinberger, (coughs) both of whom have passed away. But I asked them specifically why they went to do this every single day and what it meant to them to be survivors who told their story every day. And John's belief, and it was very interesting, was he said that the reason he did it was that it was painful every single time. It was extremely painful. So what you're saying is correct. But that if he didn't do it, he felt it would be like taking his family and putting them in a drawer and putting them away. But that every time he went and spoke, it was like he brought them back for himself. And I think that that is a very interesting concept. And Marika always had the belief that she believed in this idea of surviving survival. And so she did it because it was important to her that her survival itself had some meaning or some purpose so that she didn't want to be defined by her survival as such. She wanted to be be defined by what she did with her survival once she'd survived. So I think that it is such a complex um, subject. Um, Avril, can you t- give us a bit of a feeling about the v- your working with the Voices app and how your feelings about Testimony have changed over time because you've worked with it for such a long time? Mm.
0: Can, I, can, I, can I first go to the academic? Of course. I think it's actually more connected to, to yeah. what you're talking sure. about. So um, just to give you a quick sort of, a, you know, a, what would you call it, like a, a two-minute potted history of, of the history of testimony in the writing of Holocaust history. Some of you may know that um, in the early Holocaust histories, these the uh, the giants of the field, people like Raul Hilberg, uh, would not use testimony. They wouldn't use it because as historians, they felt it to be unreliable. And, and it is an ongoing problem, obviously, because, as Michael has so clearly explained to us, it's, it's not so much the fallibility of memory, but it's how memory, you know, actually is a changing thing over time. So the way that you – and we see this, you know, we see this in the way survivors even give testimony over the last 20 years. It means something very different to a survivor to give testimony once they've had a grandchild. Right? It, it changes the way they see the continuity of their family and the story that, that came before. Right? So, so it doesn't mean that they're telling you something untrue, but the way they look at that experience is, is very different. I often say to my students, you know, think about how you thought about primary school when you're in high school. Now think about how you think about primary school now that you're a university student, right? It it changes over time. It's the same experience, but it changes over time. So the the first generation of Holocaust historians didn't really trust testimony as such. And the watershed moment in some ways came from outside of the academy. It came with the Eichmann trial. Right? And the Eichmann trial was in a sense, uh, well, it was, it was Ben-Gurion's opportunity to use testimony as an educative device, right? If you, do, if you go back to those trials, and you, and you can find them on YouTube, you know, um, the, the amount of survivor testimony that was used was extraordinary. I don't think any one of those survivors had first-hand experience of Eichmann. That, that wasn't what it was about, right? It was to tell the story of what Eichmann did. and to tell it in a a different way. And then you start to see in the historiography a development of what does it mean then to use these people's stories to to get a different understanding of what the Holocaust is. And we've come to a point now where we have, again, the sort of the top historians in the field, um, people like Saul Friedlander, insisting that you cannot write a comprehensive Holocaust history now without without survivors' voices, but you use them in different ways, and um, and to, to try, to attempt to link back to, or at least to provide continuity from where we're at. I think what's so interesting about the way that testimony is used now is um, is, is that it, it sort of begs the question, and, and Ari, you've spoken about this before, and I've thought a lot about it in the conversations we've had, of how do you ask the question of when did the Holocaust end? Right? Like, When does the Holocaust end? Did it end with liberation? Did it end with the closing of the last DP camp? Did it end with um, reparations? When did it end? And um, to to steal a story from Ari, uh, he will often ask students after they hear a story from a survivor where a survivor talks about the fact that every day they think of their their mother or their, their father and he'll ask them, you know, when did the Holocaust end for that survivor? Well, it didn't end. Right? It didn't end. And I think that, in a sense, is where is is where the interest is, in many ways, in terms of testimony, history, and then to, to, to very, in a very long-winded way, come back to your original question, how we want to utilise testimony in the museum space is, is about the idea that these histories don't end, right? They resonate today, they continue to resonate. And that's what we wanted in this particular app. That's what we wanted it to do. Whether we succeeded or not, I'm not sure, but we began with survivor testimony and then actually in this uh, I won't explain the ins and outs of it but but in this app you then get the opportunity to go deeper and deeper and you get to hear in a sense from, um, from different aspects of the same story. So say you're looking at the part of the display that looks at race science in, in Germany in the 1930s you hear a survivor talk about what it meant to be racially profiled in a German school. Then you hear from someone who was a a teacher in that system, right? You don't actually hear their voice, you hear someone reading out their, their testimony, right? Then you go on and you might hear from a human rights activist who talks about race science in Australia. And what it meant for, for our Indigenous populations to be racially profiled and to continue to experience it. I was at a seminar, in fact, in Melbourne a couple of months ago where Marcia Langton talked so powerfully about the legacy of race science in this, in this country. And we realised there's the resonance, you know, again and again and again. And I think that's where, for me, that's where the interest of testimony is.
2: Now, if that makes sense. Yeah. Could I leave you, um, just um... Okay, so I don't have to, this has got nothing to do with me. I didn't curate this museum. So for me I think I think it's an astonishing space to speak to. And one of the things that we've been speaking about is the voices we have. And there's a reality that we don't have most of the voices. So this is part of our display case, which I think we've curated and restructured the history of the Holocaust. In which the voice of the victims is at the heart of the way we've understood this history, and I think that's actually really poignant and powerful. That it's a different way of accessing this history. So, in terms of this photograph behind me, which I often use to educate students, and I think it's been curated really well. Although I, you know, anyone would have done it differently, but I look at this and I think, you know, for example, the prayer shawl. So this, in Hebrew, called a talit. So for me, when I speak to students who aren't Jewish, or don't know much about Yahadu, it's an opportunity to speak about my culture. I grew up in a religious family. I'm now devoutly secular. I keep nothing. Once upon a time, this was everything to me. And so to know that we say in Hebrew, to enwrap yourself in the prayer shawl in the morning. And it becomes a moment where you say, you know, not every culture is the same. And that's okay, we're not the same, we don't have to be the same. And at the same time about the specificity, because I believe all genocides are linked to a notion of xenophobia, of fearing and hating, that's not like you. And saying, because you're not like me, you don't deserve my love, or my empathy, or my compassion. And then the horror of their shoes. And anytime I do it with school kids, it's like, you can simply do it so clearly. Tell me what's the shoe on the left, who did it belong to? The shoe in the middle. And the kids get it, and then you ask them, the kid that belonged, the shoe that belongs to the kid, what can you tell me about the child? It's a child. It might have been Jewish, it might have been a, a Sinti Roma, g- gypsy, and that's it. Everything else gets taken away. So the artifact in its own way becomes a voice that there's an absence of, there's only so much it can speak to. And then there's a reality of this question that what I feel is our museum can never be totally safe, and it shouldn't be safe that education is sometimes about being dangerous and that often universities aren't dangerous enough and nor are we willing to take the risks we need. So when I speak to students, I get up and I've often changed my presentation before I do it and I say to the students, you know, um, I'm going to get it wrong. So even now, as I think how I'm going to say this to you guys, I'm going to get it wrong. So excuse me as I I stuff this up. But (laughs) if I said something like this, behind us is a blanket and it's displays the hair of bodies of human beings who were murdered. So it belongs to a survivor of ours who, this blanket's become part of our identity. And there are photographs above, or unfortunately, the photograph slightly clips it, and it's of women who've just arrived in Auschwitz, and there's, for all, the likelihood is not there, but there's a very slim possibility. It belongs to the hair of people we actually have photographs in our museum of. and that one of the things historians got wrong is we didn't listen to the voice of female survivors. That females experienced the process of arriving in a camp and having all their hair shaved off their body, including the pubic hair, differently to a man. That for women this was such a traumatic experience they never forgot it. And so I think of this photograph we display in our museum and it's from the perpetrator's gaze because some SS human beings, probably a chap by the name of Bernard Volter or Ernst Hoffman, took these photographs and put them in their photo album. After these women have been separated from their families, they're probably now learning their families have been murdered and they've got uniforms on them now. Some of them have numbers now punched so deeply into their flesh it will never be removed even by laser surgery. And then we've got this photograph on display. And then below it we have this blanket that belongs to um this woman here and how she speaks about it. So suddenly this history becomes more lived than any way I can articulate than if I read this quote out to you, or if you read the quote. So one of the reasons I'll say, uh, read it to yourselves. And if you read it to yourself, what happens is the only way you can read it to yourself, it's the beauty of literature, is the voice of this survivor becomes your own voice. It's the only way we can read, which is the beauty of words. And so her voice becomes your voice, and that creates an intimacy between you and the text. And there's a danger there. There's no safety. That I put my student in front of the hair of women and children that were murdered. There's no safe way through this. And I don't believe it always can be safe. We try and guard it through. We try and think it through. We feel it through. We create spaces like this, or we have dialogues amongst ourselves and colleagues. And I'll say every time we've done this, I'm always like, damn, I wish I'd said that. Like, or the way what you've said has made me learn it that I read and rethink this. And at the same time, it comes back to this idea of these voices have shaped it. And I'm not sure we um, know how to always do it, but nonetheless it comes back to this idea that by placing this artifact there and this voice of this woman here, and you can see Olga's there touching this blanket, what's the safety of her holding this blanket in front of these kids and telling them this hair belonged to people who were murdered in a death camp? And I don't think there is a safety, but I think there are ethical questions I think are, I'd be really interesting for you guys to comment on. Are we traumatising or doing something really macabre or pornographic in this picture that's deeply unhealthy?
3: Please do. Please do. we've got here for. I, you've all got parents. But I think um, you, you've spoken uh, about this, the importance of artefacts um, in creating a, I don't know if it's an empathic arc between... Mm. The, the visitor and, and the story. Um, and I think you've spoken about uh, the philosopher Levinas and this idea of the face-to-face encounter um, as being the core of ethics, is that there's this obligation to the other. And if you abide your view that the genocide is ultimately a form of extreme othering. And so we have this obligation, this moral obligation to the other. So is the, the voice of the survivor, the face-to-face to encounter, well, we still can, um, that necessary ethical step? I think it's interesting. I had an interesting experience um, a couple of months back. My area of interest is, is the Mortar, the, the, the so called Nazi euthanasia program, the murder of the sick. And um, the, program, uh, the, the program was co- coordinated out of a building in Berlin, Tiergartenstrasse number four, which was a building which was since destroyed. And so T4 became this iconic. Um, image this building, the Liebermann house. The house belonged to this family, the Liebermanns, and it was appropriated by the the SS um, economic office. So I was in uh, Cape Town. And I was about to give a, a public lecture about this, and a woman came up to me uh, and she said, um, "I grew up in the Liebermann house." She had fled. She had escaped Germany just after Kristallnacht, um, but um, she had grown up in the house. The house that had become this iconic sort of uh, symbol of, of of the Nazi euthanasia program. Uh, and to me, I'm still trying to process the significance of that. I sort of had this emotional response. It's a bit like when you go to Gallipoli and you have that kind of a connection or something like that. Um, what was it that I was experiencing? Was it a form of, you know, sort of ultra-empathy? Was it some, you know, this is you know the living, breathing kind of manifestation of this history? This is the reality that I needed to apprehend this? I, I don't know quite what that interaction was. And I'm wondering if there's something about that kind of face-to-face encounter that you have with the, test of the testimony. Um, and... I mean, it's not quite answering the question about ethics, but I think yeah. there is a process. And uh, you've, you've all spoken about how important, the importance of this, the importance for the, the yeah. survivor to testify, the importance for this story to be out, the importance for this narration to occur. Um, what is that importance? As a, what, are we, what are we needing as a species? What are we needing as a culture? Yeah. And what, what need is being met with this?
1: Well, maybe maybe the the actual need that we are meeting is some sort of really you need a much closer human connection, that yep. just reading it mm. isn't enough. And that actually leads to what's going to be my last question before we um, turn the room over to the audience, is if, if, in fact, that is the essence of it, what's going to happen mm. for us now with testimony um, in, say, 20 years' time when there won't be any more survivors? Mm. What 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 is testimony going to be then?
0: Can I pick up from what Michael? So Michael mentioned the the philosopher Levinas, Emmanuel Levinas, and um, without even attempting to to be an expert on Levinas, because. I'm not, um, but it's his idea. I think is fundamental to what we're trying to do and what we're talking about, which is that Levinas, um, based on a really a response to the Holocaust, he lost family in the Holocaust, does come up with this idea of the the, the, the ethics at its root, right? At, it, at the root of what we mean by ethics has to be the face of the other, right? So, in other words, my ethical obligation doesn't begin with me. It begins with you, and this. And if you think about the history of, of uh, Western philosophy, that is—it's—it's it's not a radical thing from a religious perspective, by the way. It's not a radical thing from the great religions, but it is a radical thing from Western philosophy. Because if you—if you had to ask, I don't, know, you know. Can't or so you'd get a completely different answer. You'd, you'd get an answer about autonomy, right, or something, something like that. Right. So, so the response to the other at a very deep level, I think, is something that comes out of a recognition of the suffering um, of, let's say, the 20th century, but particularly of of the Holocaust. Right. So. I think there is something fundamental about testimony that brings us into contact with that question and that experience. And if we can't maintain that, in a sense, that's the, that's the issue to me. It's not about the physical presence of the survivor. It's about understanding that that is what their testimony has given us, in a sense, right? And that we have to, we have to be able to uh, in a sense, stand, stand where Levinas wants us to stand, right, in relationship to, to that, to the, the face of the other and the testimony of the other. And I'm not sure that depends on them. You know, that depends on us, right, and that's where what I think is interesting about this intergenerational change is whether we can do it. Right? It's not really about them. I think we, we have this, you know, almost like paranoia, and particularly in the Jewish community. Like, what are we going to do when the survivors go? What are we going to do? And I think it's actually that's what the anxiety is, right? It's not about them. They've done their job. Right? They've done it day in and day out for week after week, year after year. It's what are we going to do, you know, in, in response to that. Okay.
1: Um, I think that we would now like to open the floor to questions. Um, thank you.
3: You spoke about the impact on the survivors, can you speak on how it's impacted those listening and hearing as well, both the emotional, physical, as well as the learning and how it impacts their life?
2: Um, I look, it really varies. And like one, I'd say one of the things we don't debate enough is what it does. And there's no real answer to this. What I mean by that is, we, I'm not a fan of numbers, but say we, this last year we took 28,000 school kids through, 90 plus percent would have heard a survivor speak. But um, it seems quite clearly that any feedback we receive, this is the thing for them. This is the heart and soul of the experience they've had when they've come into our museum. And I I believe that that speaks to some of the things we've been touching upon. And I'll give you an example because it's just in my head, so it's the only one I can think of. I was creating a panel with three female survivors and there are very few female Holocaust survivors I'd be willing to put on a panel with survivors from other genocides in terms of their willingness to really be sensitive and listen to those other traumas and evaluate them as not saying my trauma is worse. So I had a female Cambodian survivor, a female Rwandan survivor, and a Holocaust survivor. And I'd been preparing them separately for hours and I'd spent some 12 hours with a Rwandan survivor before I'd put her in public because she'd never spoken in public. And um, the Holocaust survivor, was open to it, and then suddenly she started making comments to me about how their genocides weren't as bad as ours, the Holocaust is the worst. And so this made me really uncomfortable. And eventually I had her in a room with five Rwandan survivors and two Cambodian survivors. We were meeting to have a discussion at the panel. And she sat there and every single Rwandan in the room was... They were all orphans. Everybody in the room was orphans. And they all spoke about how they had no graves to go to. And this female survivor doesn't either. And she sat there and she looked at these younger survivors and you could see her say, any real difference didn't matter. She suddenly really listened. So what I'm getting at here, because the example that was in my head, was that listening to another human being, what it does to him, is it speaks in a way that nothing else does. Right, to hear somebody flesh and blood sit in front of you and say, I did this and I want to share that most of the time the experience is profoundly positive, that it takes it out of history that's solely academic. And I say this as an academic, but I think there's a huge purpose in academia for the sake of simply of academia. I believe that passionately. But I believe for a 13, 14, 17 year old, it's something a little bit different. They're not gonna be historians. I want them to understand the history of the Holocaust in more human terms. And you see them suddenly click all the firing is in really human terms, there's a human connection. And I think there's a real beautiful interaction between somebody who's 60 years older than this person or 80 years old than sometimes, and they realize this person's story matters. That's what I'd say from the faces I watch in every single class I watch. And most of them pay attention. They listen and they care.
5: Thank you. Um, I'd like to add to that, actually. My 16-year-old daughter recently came to the museum for a, um, an excursion. She's in Year 10. And um, to give you an example of how far the voice actually reaches... Um, after her excursion, she they are doing the studies on the Holocaust and so on, they used three artefacts and one was Anne Frank's diary, of course, I can't remember the second one it was a photograph and the third one was Olga Horak's blanket and the fact that it had such a profound impact on her and how she wrote this into her essay on um, around the theme that the essay was based on and the fact that she actually got to hear the words from somebody who had experienced that made it extremely real for her it wasn't a narrative anymore it wasn't just something in a book that she was reading it was a real lived experience so I just want to say that I think the work you do is fantastic and um, the fact that it reaches out it affected me so much I've been there before but not for a number of years but the fact that she was so she experienced the same thing I did when I went there but many years ago made, made it a, a really uh, valuable experience as well so I just wanted to add to that comment that you made.
1: Thank you. Um, other questions?
6: Um, I just wanted to say it's obviously great to see the connectedness with the community that um, you guys are achieving through the museum. Um, I personally lived in Germany for many years and think the Germans are doing a good job of or beginning to do a good job of owning what happened. My question being is that do you think the broader Australian population has a connection to this story and to these voices? Obviously everyone here tonight probably is likely to have a particular interest in the Holocaust Um, and obviously the Jewish community within Australia has a connection through the museum and their family survival stories. Do you think the – how would you go about connecting the broader Australian popularity to these – population to these voices and, you know, making sure, for instance, that the message gets across, you know, the tolerance message that you were talking about before that something like this doesn't happen in Australia? really pleased actually that you brought that up. One of the things that we um when we were redoing the exhibition
0: that's been open now for about a year and a half, the redeveloped the Holocaust exhibition, one of the things we specifically wanted to achieve was connection to Australia both in where it was historically um had the historical integrity to do that where there was a real historical connection but also to do precisely what you're talking about and this is you know obviously this is a contentious thing within history because historians are inherently suspicious of comparative work anyway because they like the specifics right they like specifics of every single situation that's what their, their bread and butter is um and so you, and and also because you do have to do justice to the individuality of stories and what happened in germany is not the same as what happened in the former Yugoslavia. or or in Cambodia, they are unique to their situations. Yet, at the same time, the kind of um, the kind of empathetic connection that, in fact, the lady up the back I think was was talking about when she when she just gave the example of how it affected her daughter and then her, is achievable. I think, um, despite the historical differences. So, to give you again, to give you an example of that. We used an authentically Australian story that many of you probably know, which is the story of William Cooper, right? uh, you, an Aboriginal leader from the Yorta Yorta Nation, who, on hearing the news of Kristallnacht, at a point in time where, I mean, there is still obviously ongoing, um, ongoing discrimination against Aboriginal peoples in this country, but at the time that he led the protest, right, in 1938, um, we hadn't even had the referendum, right, <laughs> at, that, at that point. And it's one of the few known protests. In the world where they took a signed petition to the German consulate, never made it to Berlin, but that doesn't matter. This the symbolism of what he did, right, and what, what that um, that that achieved that protest against what was happening to Jews in Germany is extraordinary, and that's an extraordinary Australian story. So too, uh, there are less less laudatory Australian stories, right? The uh, the quotas on migration uh, in the post-war period, right? The the white Australia policy that has yet again reared its head in in recent times, right, Um, in speeches by our politicians. Uh, The De Niro episode, right, which was about interning so-called enemy aliens um, in Australia. There are incredible authentic connections across that I think build a sort of a, a, a connection, but also a resonance for this history today. So, so that, those are some of the ways. Um, and then I think through doing exactly what Ari and the education team are doing, which is, is, is building these authentic connections between
3: communities and individuals today. We've done quite a bit of work looking at German engagement. The process uh, called Vergangenheitsbewältigung, the work in the past that, that began under Adenauer, Um, and has now morphed into what they call Erinnerungskultur, which is the remembrance culture, and that's starting to integrate um, other events in German history like the GDR, the the so-called Vertriebung, the the expulsion of ethnic Germans from Eastern Europe as the Red Army swept through. Um, And the question is sort of, I suppose it's it's assumed that the Germans, your comment was that the Germans seem to be leading the way with how to engage with um, a historical wrong and this is the paradigm we ought to follow. We've certainly looked at, in our work, how the German medical profession has engaged with its past and how the Australian medical profession ought to engage with this past. In fact, we were here in March talking on that very topic. Um, I think, though, that and I'd sort of highlight the, the work of, of Colin Tats, the, the, you know, our, our treasure, a treasured uh, genocide scholar, who sort of really argues and will argue, I think, to his last breath, that we have an unacknowledged genocide in this country and we live in a state of denialism and we still are spending millions of dollars on statues of Captain Cook and other you know people who could be argued to be perpetrators of, of colonial genocide. So we have a very complicated cultural moment and as, as Avril said, it is it's now being appropriated by politicians to you know, achieve political ends. And so I think the, the Holocaust, uh, whatever that is, not just the Shoah, but the aggregate of crimes that occurred under, under Nazism, provide us with a, almost a neutral space to explore this aspect of our species, um, because we don't seem capable of these conversations contextualised to now. Uh, and that, that's, that's been my observation. That being said, Germany seems to be wandering or sleepwalking into a very similar nightmare that Poland and Hungary are doing. Uh, a colleague of ours noticed the other day an advert um, uh, on a street uh, sign, like a, a billboard in um, the outskirts of Berlin. It said De Deutschland ist die Wachen, which is essentially was the sort of, you know, the Nuremberg rally, Deutschland ist So they're starting to play with matches again as well. So there, are, there are downsides to
1: that.
3: Um, I have a couple of questions. Firstly, about the Spielberg project in the 90s, mid-90s, and those tapes which were, have been hopefully archived. And are they kept in Australia as well as Hollywood?
1: Yes, they're, they're in Hollywood. Um, actually, our museum has full access to all of the Australian interviews. So if you wanted to come and listen to any of the interviews, um, that were done in Australia. The Sydney Jewish Museum has full access. Um, Monash also has access. I think that they have access to the full collection, um, but we we have access at our museum.
3: And also a specific medical question about the tra- trauma and its effect on the brain. There are some survivors, and I know one lady who's, you know, in her mid-90s still living on her own and not affected yet, Many others, including my parents, developed dementia. Um, So you could say, is it 50-50? Likely that trauma will affect the brain in in that regard? Um, That's a a complicated question. Um, Certainly there's trauma and then there's trauma. Trauma is not a unitary concept. Um, So trauma experienced in childhood begets a very different state of being than trauma sustained in adulthood. Trauma that enables someone to identify with a collective or a group, a persecuted group is different from trauma that isolates. So if one compares the experience, if you can, of a survivor of a genocide to someone who was sexually abused in a family, who has to exist in almost anonymity, whose trauma is often repudiated or denied, Um, is often a source of medicalised violence with their experience in the healthcare system and they're very different concepts. And what we know about trauma and adaptation to life after trauma is it's it's what follows the event. Um, A lot of what determines somebody's outcome after a traumatic event is not just the nature of the trauma itself but what kind of life you have afterwards, what kind of safety and security and ecology you're able to have afterwards? And I think it, it, it's difficult to answer that question. But a lot, I think that the, the word of the evening is resilience. Yeah. I think that everybody that you have spoken about this evening is a resilient human being and that resilience I think is probably what we have to focus more on now uh, and how that resilience exists and how do we learn from that experience of resilience. But um, trauma is toxic. And I think that, again, if we are looking at some of the contemporary significance of this, if we are to think about trauma as a part of a human experience, we have to think about the very subtle forms of trauma. The vast majority or the vast burden of trauma in this community is borne by women living in what um, has been termed the the tyranny of the household. You know, the fact that middle-aged and older women are the most overrepresented group of homeless people. Um, These are the sorts of, I think, unspeakable questions that we as a culture have to engage. And I think if we think about the Holocaust as a paradigm for trauma, we have to think about how other forms of trauma are different.
4: Oh, hello. Um, yeah, thank you for that. It's all very extremely interesting. Um, I just wondered, um, because you're talking about survivors of, 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 see, of the um, Holocaust, so I see those as the direct survivors. Um, but I just wondered... Um, I mean, I I grew up in London, but um, my grandfather came from Poland and I know that he had, um, I think, seven or eight brothers and sisters and um, only he and one sister um, managed to leave Poland in time and survived. So um, we've always, yeah, kind of always grew up, you know, knowing that there was this huge loss in the families that we would never, never know or know what happened to them or anything. And um, so I just wonder how you regard. I mean, to some extent, I wonder whether you know that could be still a survivor having so much loss um, having occurred in families, and and also I guess I, I know over the years I have kind of read or heard talks, but um, in terms of the you were talking about the dream um, having the dream, and I know from very young I've I've had dreams um, of kind of being on the run and um, yeah, just whether that, whether you do consider that that can be um, deferred. Would it be like deferred trauma or deferred, yeah, survivor?
3: (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll respond quickly to that and then throw that to you. Um, There is um, we talk about this transgenerational transmission of trauma. Um, I think to understand it, I would commend everybody in this room, to listen to a podcast. Uh, It was an interview between Richard Weston uh, of the Healing Foundation and Catherine Murphy, The Guardian. You can find it just on The Guardian's website, where he talks about how trauma is transmitted across generations in Aboriginal families, particularly families of ethnic... who survived ethnic cleansing, you know, stolen generation. And I think... He nails it. He just explains how this works. I, I, I would, I would, I'd, I'd let Richard answer that question. Um, so.
0: And I, I was actually going to recommend someone as well. Mariana Hirsch has written on something a concept that she's developed called post-memory, and this is when her idea is that the memories of your parents are so imbibed by the by the children that they almost become your memories. But of course, there's an awareness that they're not as well, and the complications that that. That ha- that happens because of that. So I would also recommend her her work to you. But I think I think um, you know I'm not a am not a psych- that's not my my area. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. But th- so this is purely anecdotal and through my own observations. But I I cannot but help think it is true. It is true. We are we are all made by our parents' experiences, whether they are positive or negative ones, and and that is something that we carry in our, in our families.
6: I'd just like to ask, in terms of when people do listen to and take on the voices of... Oh, can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and take on the voices of Holocaust um, survivors, how important is it for them to, for the people listening, to understand the sort of the historical and the social context of all that, or is it all right for them to come away just having sort of taken on the, the personal story and experience of, of, of that one individual. That's a great question. That's
2: cru- oh look, I'd say for us, I think it's crucial, um, what we do at our museum. So, a well, question we raised before is, um, I think it ties into, in one sense, the passing of survivors is going to liberate the museum I work in and the community I'm a part of. And so, for us, juggling alongside the issue of testimony which is fraught. It's one of the issues you might want to touch upon that you said you were gonna come back to, the question of how one utilizes um, testimony. So when I came into the museum, I'm aware of something different than being in an academic setting lecturing about the history of the Holocaust. I didn't want my students to give me their moral judgments and their taste, which was important, but that wasn't what I felt my university students needed to be doing when they were doing the first, second year, or third year Holocaust studies course. In the museum I work in because we're, I know we're at the twilight of living memory and I see a 16-year-old or a 10-year-old as being something different than a university course, somebody studying history, as being in a different educational process. We've got them for two to three hours. And most of our students come for three hours. And that one of those hours is hearing a survivor speak. And the chance as much as possible, hopefully, for them to ask questions of that person, engage in a conversation, then to be taken on a tour, where we ask our guides to very much engage in the question of artefacts and the stories and layers behind each of these artefacts. And then it's a, a seminar. And some of the seminars are about engaging with the questions of memory and trauma and the way in which our museum has constructed this history. And so speaking as an oral historian, there are ways I would speak about history that are very different when a survivor's not there. So what I'm getting at here is I believe all of them enrich each other and layer over each other. That the ways Olga speaks about her blanket is very different to the way I will. That the jacket I showed here, for example, belonging to George Gronoski, Um, he'll speak about it differently to the way I will, right? And so I would use an anecdote like, you know, for George, he comes into our museum, speaks, and then he leaves as quickly as possible because he doesn't want to be in that space. And I might share that to students. They understand this understanding that history doesn't stop for the survivor. But then if I'm giving a history of Buchenwald, which is one of the camps which he was last in, I wouldn't be solely relying on George's testimony. I'd have to look in particular at the Nazi documents and also particularly perpetrator testimony. So survivor testimony is crucial, but it can't and absolutely never should be all. You've talked about um, also... um,
6: working with survivors of more recent genocides, um, Rwandan and Cambodian. Those survivors, they'll be here in 20 years time. What I'm interested in is, and and indeed these issues all apply to those survivors. You've talked about spending a great deal of time with um, survivors of the Holocaust. Do you spend the same amount of time with those survivors or who supports them? Can you just tell yeah, us yeah.
2: more? Oh, so I say I don't think they receive enough support and I don't feel like the community wants to hear them. So I'll make a, you know, so one of the things we did as a museum was to host the last Rwandan anniversary ceremony. And I'll say politically it took a lot to convince my museum because we were set up by Holocaust survivors to host a, a memorial um, ceremony for the Rwandan genocide. It took a lot of convincing. And um, I'm glad I did it. It took a lot of fighting of people in my, some of my colleagues weren't so happy with me saying, this is as important as the Holocaust. I believe it is. Um, So my job means I primarily spend time with Holocaust survivors. But the story I told before when I took this 80-year-old survivor, I was astonished by what this woman did, that she changed. When she heard everybody sit in that room and say, this is our story, this survivor at the age of 80, she sat there and went, I get it. They're exactly like me in every way that matters. And I've done three panels with these women and they're astonishing together, what they do. I am so moved and they support each other. So when I had the youngest survivor, and I'll use her name, her name's Chantal, she's 36. She has three kids, her eldest is five or six six years old now. And so for her it's different, like exactly what um, Avril was talking about. She's at a totally different stage of her life For her to relive her memories is different for somebody who's older. So she's starting to ask the question of, when my kids get older, what can I tell them or can't I? Because they're not yet there for asking questions. Why don't I have half the family? Where are the aunts and uncles? But they're starting to get there. And so Chantal is starting to listen. And it was amazing for her to be in the space with this 80-year-old Holocaust survivor who'd been dealing with the exact same issue. And suddenly she was learning from this older survivor how this other survivor has dealt with very similar issues. So my feeling is, is that they don't receive as a community as a nut, as much support as they should. But it's hard to create spaces for them to talk. And the little bits our museum has done, I'm, I'm really proud of. I think it's really, really important. And I'm trying to push my colleagues and friends in the Rwandan community to start recording their testimonies. They should record them now. Next year, the year again and again and again. And each time you record, it'll be different, but that'll be okay. But you say, you know, the last thing I'll say is when I did this, the last time I had them on a panel, I had this wonderful Catholic woman who was very religious Catholic. And she asked Chantal about being a religious Catholic. And Chantal said, Yeah, we were very religious Catholics. Every morning we got up and we prayed. And during the Rwandan genocide, her father went to hide in a Catholic church. And they turned her family away. So her father and three of her siblings were massacred in a school. So Chantal, when I do this, there are ways she'll give me warnings to say I can talk about this or not. And then hopefully I keep her as safe as I can. But she also is making choices. And so she said, you know, after this I never set foot in a Catholic church. She doesn't come to the Rwandan commemoration ceremony because it's too painful. Those three months from when the Rwandan genocide begins in April, uh, her three months of reliving it every year. And so she said, you know, after this, I was, I, I just, I didn't believe anymore. But then she went to Anglican churches. And so this religious Catholic girl was so traumatized by hearing this from this Catholic and what this had done to her. And so she asked her and said, you know, well, what did you feel afterwards? And Chantal was quiet for a moment. And then she said something I've never heard a Holocaust survivor say as candidly. She said, I was numb and I was confused. And then I saw the 80-year-old Holocaust survivor sitting there and nodding as she found out the knowledge of her story. From both of them hearing each other's stories, they're learning. And so for the little bit, my own focus is the Holocaust Museum, but those little spaces where we create, I always believe it's about hearing and realising every single voice and every single story is as valid as the other. But for the little bit we do, it's from our survivors learning from each other and realising you're from Africa, I'm from Europe, I'm from Southeast Asia, and yet all of us realise each voice is as important as the other.
1: Look, I'd like to just say thank you so much for attending our panel and, um, and of course, I would be remiss if I didn't say to you that um, I would hope that you would all come <laughs> and see the Jewish Museum <laughs> and come and listen to our survivors and experience for yourself what it is exactly that we're talking about. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you.